Can you believe it? I'll tell you what, Christmas just around the corner. It seems like it's coming so fast every year. Doesn't it go faster and faster, get here quicker and quicker? Tonight, the Living Christmas Tree, 7 o'clock. Uh, hope you plan to be here. Hope you invite some friends. Uh, and then again, Wednesday night, uh, the Living Christmas Tree again. So exciting program, one that will really be inspirational, kind of kicking off the, the Christmas season here. Next Sunday morning, Joel will be preaching. He has a special sermon on the shepherds. Looking forward to that. Then the next week, Chad on the 23rd will be sharing the Christmas story. Looking forward to that. Then we have Christmas Eve coming up. We have a special service planned with some really neat specials I think will touch your heart. We'll be singing our favorite Christmas carols, having a candlelight service. Talk a little bit about Jesus, the light of the world. So we have an exciting season, I think, before us here. So this week's sermon, my sermon this morning, is kind of a preliminary sermon. It kind of sets the stage for the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. So nothing will be on the screen this morning, so I ask you to get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible, please use one of the pew Bibles in, in front of you. Uh, the Pew Bibles are New International Version. That's what I'll be reading from. However, uh, mine's a 2011, so it might read a little differently than the one you're reading from, meaning the same thing, but just different words to tell the same story. So please get your Bibles up because we're going to be reading a lot this morning in Luke chapter 1. It'd be very helpful if you can uh, follow along. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It ends with a prophecy concerning the one who will come and prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the one who will be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, Malachi tells us. That is John the Baptist. And that's how Luke begins. He begins to tell us, he begins Luke chapter 1 by giving us this first miraculous birth, the birth of John the Baptist, and then he'll continue talking about another miraculous birth, the birth of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to look at uh, the birth of uh, John the Baptist. Let's begin in chapter 1, verse 5, down through verse 7. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to a priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Notice this, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. Now it's interesting here in this passage that Luke mentions both Herod and Zechariah. Because when you think about Herod, you have a man who is extremely evil. And you look at Zechariah and you see what the Bible says about him. He's a priest and he's, he's kept the law blamelessly. So you have a very wicked man and a very righteous man. It's kind of have a contrast here. Herod was the Hitler of his day. He was the uh, king of the king in Judea, but he wasn't put there by popular vote of the Jews at all. He was uh, put there by Rome. He was a great builder. Uh, the temple that was built in, in this day, in Jesus' day, the temple Jesus went to was built by Herod, called Herod's Temple. Magnificent. He built the fortress of Masada. He built the, the seaport city of Caesarea and an arena that would hold 10,000 people for athletic games. He was a great builder, but he was an evil man. There, there probably wasn't a sin that he hadn't committed. He killed his favorite wife. He killed three of his own kids many of his relatives. At the birth of Jesus, it is this Herod who is going to have all the baby boys two years of age and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem put to death. 
The fifth century historian, uh, Macrobius, wrote about Herod, and he said that Caesar Augustus said of Herod, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. An evil man, evil man, Herod. And then you have the contrast. You have Zechariah. He was a priest. He served in the temple of God. The Bible says that he and his wife Elizabeth, did you notice this? Upright in the sight of God, observing all the commandments and regulations blamelessly. Can that be said of you? Observing all the commands of God blamelessly? I would hope that could be said of me, but I don't think that it can. But that's how Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now I'm going to talk a little more about that aspect of, in, in just a moment. But there's a contrast here between someone who's evil and someone who is righteous. But even though we have that contrast, I don't think that's why Luke tells us about Herod the Great. He tells us about Herod to put things in historical perspective. See, what Luke is writing is not mythological. It's not fiction. It's historical. It happened at a certain time. It happened in a certain place. It happened when Herod was king of Judea. It was common back then to date things by the rulers, uh, world rulers and local rulers, uh, to help people understand when different events took place. And Luke, as an historian, is very good at this. I mean, he's a biblical writer inspired by the Spirit, but he tells us in the first four verses that he's going to be very careful of giving us an outline of what happened. He's a good historian. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he's going to tell us exactly when John the Baptist begins his ministry, when Jesus uh, was baptized also. He, he tells us it was during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now we know when that was. That was A.D. 26. And then to narrow it down a little more, he tells us it was during the reign of Herod Antipas, during the reign of Philip, uh, during the reign of Licinius and, and Pilate. And then he's going to tell us about a couple high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, uh, just kind of giving us a time period of when all these events take place. So what I'm just telling you is what we read here is not fiction. You get on the internet today, you have these internet atheists, and, and they just throw things out there. They just say things. Not true. This is historical. He names all these things. You're not going to find anything in antiquity that's any better than this. Luke is a good historian. He doesn't just throw the name of Herod out there. Uh, he, he does it for a purpose. Now let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and how upright they were in the eyes of God. Why? Why does Luke tell us this? Why does he tell us they kept all these commands? They were blamelessly. What's his purpose? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. Number one, God is telling us the type of people that he usually uses to carry out his purposes. He uses people that are faithful. He uses people that follow him. He uses people that are obedient. He uses people that are trying to live upright and righteous lives. Do you want to be used of God for his glory, for his purpose? Then you'd be like Zachariah and Elizabeth, being obedient followers of his. The second reason I, I think he tells us this is because Elizabeth is barren. She's not able to have a child. Now, back in that day, you know, uh, everybody saw a child as a blessing from God. And if for some reason you were not able to have a child... Well, maybe it's because of some type of sin in your life. 
Maybe you did something disgraceful. So I think Luke is very careful here to tell us, no, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, no, nah, these are blameless. These are good people. These are obedient people. Uh, the, 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 she's not barren because of some sin in her life. And the third reason I think he tells us this because he wants us to know that people who live righteous lives also face problems. This couple did everything they're supposed to do, and yet they had a, a problem. What was the problem? They wanted a child. They weren't able to have a child. You know, there are those who preach today and teach today that if you're a Christian and you're living for God and you're trying to do what is right, that you will have a life that is full of health and happiness and prosperity. All you've got to do is turn on your television, listen to your radio, and you're going to hear some of these nuts tell you that. And I call them nuts because that's not what the Bible teaches. They tell you if you're a Christian, you're going to live a problem-free life. Not true. We can see that right here with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Blameless, following all the decrees and commands of God. And yet they had problems. They had heartache. And the Bible teaches this over and over again. Timothy was a young preacher. He had some type of stomach problem. It wasn't just a little bit of acid indigestion here and there. It was enough that Paul had to write about it, maybe concerned that Timothy was going to stop preaching because of it. Paul himself had some type of thorn in his flesh. All the apostles except John were martyred for their faith. John was persecuted, stuck on an island by himself. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, tells us about a number of people very faithful to God. This is what it says about them. They were tortured. They were thrown in prison, flogged, stoned, sawed in two. Did you ever see that magic trick where they put a person in a box, they saw them in two, put them back together? Magic trick. But can you imagine in real life pulling someone out like that, sawing them in two where they're alive? person's a follower of God, yet that happened to them. The Bible says they were mistreated. They were destitute. Not rich, not rich, not prosperous, as many of these television preachers will tell you. No, destitute. They wandered in the desert, it says. They lived in the mountains, in caves, in holes in the ground. And then the Hebrew writer says, many of them were put to death by sword. You know, because you're righteous doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. John chapter 16, verse 33, we read where Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. So if you're listening to some preacher on television or the radio that tells you if you're a Christian, you're going to live a trouble-free life, understand they're con contradicting what Jesus said. And they're nothing more than, you know, snake oil salesmen. Don't listen to what they're saying. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people, but they had a problem. They were very old. They did not have any children. How many years do they want to have children? 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Most scholars believe they were somewhere between their middle 60s and or maybe even closer to 80 when this is uh, written here. How many times did Elizabeth get some type of invitation to go to someone's house because they were celebrating the birth of a baby? And how many times did she go brokenhearted because she so much wanted a child? They had a problem. Let's read on, beginning in verse 8. Once when uh, Zechariah 
Zechariah's division was on duty. He was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense came, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, when you read this, you might get the idea that Zechariah, he's an older man, he's a priest, he served in the temple often. That's not the case. He was chosen by lot to be in that temple. The Bible tells us in uh, 1 Chronicles that there were 24 divisions of priests. Scholars tell us in Zechariah's day there were about 20,000 priests in Judea. And there, that, that 20,000 would be divided into these 24 divisions. So there were about 830-some priests per division. And these divisions would take turns serving at the temple. Each division of 800-some priests would serve twice a year, two weeks out of the year. But there are 800 and some priests in each division, and each week they needed 35 priests, so they only needed 70 priests to serve in the temple out of that 830-some priests. So they would choose lots, and if you, you got the lot chosen, you got to serve in the temple. So you might be a priest for a very long time and never serve in the temple. So Zechariah is serving the temple. It's not something he does all the time. I think this is a thrill for him. He's excited. It's an opportunity. He's, he's the one who's going to clip the wicks there and, and burn the incense. But it's an exciting opportunity for him there as he serves God in the holy place in the temple. It was a special day for Zechariah. Let's read on, beginning in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When Zechariah heard the angel say that last part, his mind went back to that last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, the last sentence or two, because it's almost word for word. His son who is going to be born is the one who is going to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. He's going to be the, uh, the forerunner, uh, the, this Elijah-like person who prepares the way for the Messiah. Now here we have an angel speaking to Zechariah. Later on in the account, we, we learn that his name is Gabriel. A lot of angels appear in the Bible. Only two are named. One is Gabriel. You tell me, what's the name of the other angel? Let's see if you're, what's his name? Michael. Michael. Now you're going to read books, Christian books. You're going to read novels, magazine articles that name other angels. There are no other angels named in the Bible. Traditionally, people give angels other names, but there are no other names given in the Bible for angels. These two, Gabriel and Michael. Now there are times in the Bible that angels appear like ordinary men. We think of the angels that went to get Lot out of Sodom. They looked like men. The angels who went to see Abraham looked like men. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, too, 
Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So sometimes angels just look like ordinary men, people. We might come in contact with them and never know it. You might have actually come in contact with an angel sometime in your life, did not know it. But at other times, their appearance makes their identity quite clear. In Daniel chapter 10, we read about this angel appearing to Daniel. Here's how he's described. His body was like crystallite, his face like lightning, his eyes flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. No wonder the Bible says when Daniel saw him, his strength left him. His knees became weak. His face turned deadly white. A deathly white. The angel uh, who rolled back the st stone when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he, his clothes were dazzling white. And the Bible says the guards who saw him uh, stood there like a dead man. In other words, they were scared stiff, if you want to paraphrase it, when they saw that angel. Now, I don't know how Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. It doesn't tell us here. But verse 12 says, Zechariah saw him and was startled and gripped with fear. So that gives me the idea that he did not look simply like an ordinary person. I don't know exactly what he looked like, but he was gripped with fear. Now, you might think that when you're in the presence of an angel, and the angel gives you this type of news, you know, you've been praying for a, a child all these years, and now you're going to have one, not just any child, but the forerunner of Jesus Christ, that you might get really excited, you know? You might think that Zechariah would jump up and want to give the angel a high five or something. That's not what happens, though. Verse 18 says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well and long in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. I mean, how many times had Zechariah been visited by an angel? Wasn't that proof enough that he didn't believe him? So the angel basically says, you want proof, I'll give you proof. Verse 20, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. And when Zechariah left the temple, the people who were out there realized he had seen some type of vision because he wasn't able to speak when he left. Verse 24 through 25 says, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, she's pregnant, yet she stays in seclusion for five months. Why did she do that? Is she older? Is it for a health reason? You know, has to stay in bed? I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think um, she stayed in bed because she hadn't been able to become pregnant, and now she's pregnant, and if she goes outside, she's going to tell everybody. And who's going to believe her? I mean, who, she's old, past childbearing age. She's been barren all these years, trying to have children, been praying for a child, did not have a child, you know. And now she's going to run around and tell everybody, hey, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. Sure you are, Elizabeth. Yeah, that's right. Treat Elizabeth okay. You know, something's going on with her. You know, Liz isn't right anymore. So she stayed at home for five months until she showed 
And when she went out, everybody knew when she said she was pregnant, she was pregnant. Plus, she wore one of those sweatshirts that had the arrow that said baby. <laughs> well, maybe not. I'm not sure about that part. Maybe not. But that's probably the reason why she stayed in for five months. Later on in this chapter, when it came time for the baby to be born, a bunch of relatives came over and said, what are you going to name the child? And remember, the angel told them what to name the child. Elizabeth said, we're going to name him John. Relative says, you don't have anybody in your family named John. What are you thinking? Aren't you going to name him Zachariah or something like that? So they turned to Zachariah and what are you going to name him? And Zachariah takes something and he writes on it, John. That's what God told him to name the baby. That's what they're going to name the baby. When Zachariah did that, his voice came back. Now when you look at Luke chapter 1 here, talking about the birth of John the Baptist, there are a lot of lessons that you can learn, a lot of things we could talk about. You certainly have fulfilled prophecy. That's pretty neat. Uh, you have something told us about John the Baptist, how great he's going to be, what his job is. We uh, learn something about history here as far as Herod and some others. We learn a little bit about angels. But there are three things I want to share with you, just quick closing thoughts, three, three closing thoughts here about what we've read. Number one, as we see in this passage, even though you might be a righteous person, you are going to have problems in life. They're going to come. Most of you have already had many, and, and you're going to have many more. If you're not facing a problem at this time, you're going to be facing a problem sometime again in the future. Because you're a righteous person, because you're a Christian, does not exempt you from problems. You are going to have problems. But the second thing I want you to remember here is uh, don't forget to pray about your problems. Uh, that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth did. They had this problem. They wanted a child, and they could not have a child, and they prayed to have a child. They didn't pray just once. They didn't pray for just a week or even a month or for a year. They prayed for 10 years. They prayed for 20 years. They prayed for 30 years, maybe up to 40 years. They prayed when Elizabeth was too old to have a child. They were still praying to have a child. The Bible tells us to be persistent in prayer. When it comes to being persistent in prayer, Zachariah and Elizabeth are the gold standard for that. They did not quit. Persistence in prayer it's tough. It's hard to pray for something over and over and over again, especially when it seems like God's not listening. But that's the third thing I want you to understand here, is that God hears your prayers. You're going to have problems, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth. Pray about those problems. And understand this, God hears your prayers. That's what the angel told Zechariah. God has heard your prayers. They waited a long time to have their prayers answered, but it was worth the wait. Their son was the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. He would announce the Messiah had come. Jesus would say this of him. We read this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Man. Think about Elizabeth. Her son 
greater than anyone born to women. Now, Jesus, of course, was God and man, conceived of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, born, a, having the Son of God tell you, listen, your son is the greatest one who has ever been born, that's really something, isn't it? And that was the answer to their prayer. You're not only going to have a child, you're going to have a child that's been prophesied about, you're going to have a child that's the greatest child who has ever been born. Persistent prayer for 40 years seemed like God wasn't going to answer it, but he did. God doesn't always answer our prayers on our timetable. He doesn't always answer our prayers the way we particularly think he ought to. But he answers in a way that is best for us. But he always hears and answers our prayer. 1 John 5 tells us this is the confidence we have in approaching God. Verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. And then in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Now God's timetable, as I said, for answering your prayers might not be what you want it to be. I'm sure with Elizabeth, you know, she would have liked that baby to have been born when she was younger and could have done other things with him was more difficult for her as she was older, I'm sure. But God will answer your prayer to solve your problem in the way that is best for you in a way that brings honor and glory to him. So today in Luke chapter 1, we learn about a miraculous birth, the birth of John the Baptist. In the weeks to come, as Christmas approaches, we're going to learn more about the miraculous birth of God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today as a Christian, understand that problems will come, but you pray to God trusting that he has heard and he will answer your prayer. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Uh, you need to understand that God hasn't promised to answer any of your prayers. He might, but he hasn't promised you. But when you become part of his family, all that changes. If you need to become a Christian, the Bible says do that. We need to have faith that leads us to turn to God, uh, to confess Christ, and then to be born again, to be baptized into him, to be buried with Christ and risen to walk in the newness of life. If you need to make that decision to be baptized into Christ today, our baptistry is available behind the tree. We can baptize you today. Uh, we're going to sing invitation hymn. As we do, we're going to stand. You come forward and we'll take your confession if you need to be baptized this morning. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>